Raise your hand if you've been to the airport in Orange County. Okay, okay. Now, as you're waiting for the plane, as you're waiting for either someone to arrive or you're waiting to go on your destination, what comes to mind when you see a flight arrive and the folks begin to exit through the doors and they're wearing flip-flops, shorts, tank top, sunglasses, maybe some sunscreen on the nose, and they're carrying two pineapples. Where did they come from? Hawaii. Or as Arch would say, oi. Right, right, Pastor Arch? It's oi. Hawaii. They just came from Hawaii. How do you know that? Okay, the pineapples, right? There's lots of clues. There's lots of indicators, right? You look at their attire. You look at what they're wearing, what they're carrying. You maybe look at their conduct. You see that, you know, they're, they're walking around going like this, you know, and hang loose. And they, they look tan, you know. They just, have, they just have a glow about them. Or actually, maybe they're crying because they just came home. But you can tell where they came from. You can tell what city they just dropped in from because of their attire, because of the way they carry themselves. We're in Philippians 3 today, and we're going to, we're going to move into Philippians 4 today. And the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about conduct, if you will, attire, if you will, that matches a destination. He's going to talk about various people groups, including the Jews, Christians, and two uh, women in particular at a church in Philippi. And he's going to talk about how their conduct and their attire either matches where they're headed or it doesn't match and it should match where they're headed. This is Paul's focus as we look at our text today. He's going to talk about whether or not our conduct, our attire, if you will, matches where we are headed or where we've come from. Let's take a look at our message today. The title of my message is Conduct That Befits or Suits One's Destination. Conduct That Befits One's Destination. We're in Philippians 3, verse 17. I want you to open up your Bibles. We've been going through the book of Philippians for quite some time now. And we've got three messages left in Philippians. Today's and the next couple Sundays. And then we'll be through the book. Um, it's been a fruitful study for me, and I trust that it's been the same for you. So let's dig in again, going verse by verse through this book. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 3, this is Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he's writing from prison. He's writing to a church that he helped found. He helped originate, if you will. Take a look at what he says, Philippians 3.17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the Gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written, or excuse me, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we give you praise once again for protecting our beloved pastor and friend, Pastor Arch. You've seen him through a very difficult accident, Lord, and we give you so much praise for that. We pray that he would have a speedy recovery. Father, now we turn our attention to your word. And we once again look at the book of Philippians, Father, which you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. We pray, Father, that as today we look at the various people groups that Paul speaks of. We look at their conduct, their attire, if you will, how they carry themselves, that we might be able to see their destination, that we might be able to see, Father, what it is that causes them to act in this or that way. Father, help us to grab practical application from this text today. I pray that you would enlighten our eyes. Help us to see clearly what it is that you would like to speak to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 17. Now we ended last week on verse 17. And we're starting this week on verse 17. That's because verse 17 is very much in a conclusion to the last section that Paul has just written. And very much an introduction to the next section that Paul is writing. And Paul says this. He says, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. He likens them to his own family in the faith. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk according to my example as you have us for a pattern. As you have us for a pattern. We've seen through the course of this study that Paul is urging the Philippians to imitate him as he strives, if you will, for the prize. The prize that we might say is epitomized in verses 8 to 11 of this chapter. If you want to, talk, if you want to look at what Paul lifts up as the ultimate prize, it is laying hold of eternal life. Not only looking to the destination of our resurrection, but laying hold of eternal life now and identifying with Christ, His resurrection, His sufferings, being conformed to His death. The prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And Paul's saying, imitate me. This is the prize that I'm striving after. And others are striving after this prize. Others in your church are striving after this prize and I want you to imitate them. He's engendering unity in the body of Christ. He's urging them to follow each other, those that are following the Lord Jesus Christ. But despite Paul's appeal that they imitate him, despite this appeal, Paul knows that not all are going to follow after such an example. In fact, some are going to be outright enemies of the walk which Paul is on. Some are going to be enemies. And that is what he begins with in verse 18. Take a look at verse 18. 
For many walk, Paul says, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and tell you now even, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. For many walk. There are many, Paul says, that are not going to follow the pattern that I'm giving you an example of. There are many who will not be on this pattern, who will not be mimicking my example. And in fact, they won't just be apathetic about my example. They'll be outright enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, two questions come to mind when we see that Paul says these people are going to be enemies of the cross of Christ. The first is this. Who are these enemies? Who are these enemies that Paul speaks of? And secondly, when did he tell them about these enemies? He seemed to indicate that he's told them often. Uh, in the original Greek, it would be that he has told them in the past and, and is continuing to tell them. He's told them often about these enemies. The qu- answer to question two, uh, which we'll address just really briefly, is probably twofold. On the one hand, we know that Paul met face to face with the Philippian Christians. Uh, it's recorded once in Scripture, but there's good speculation, good reason to believe that he met with them about two or three times from about A.D. 50 to A.D. 60. And it's very possible that that Paul would have been warning the Philippians about these enemies during those face-to-face meetings. Secondly, we see in this own letter, in chapter 1, verse 27, in chapter 2, verse 2, he refers to enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't refer to it as the cross of Christ, but he calls them adversaries. And he he is making a clear warning against those that the Philippians are to watch out for. But what about question one? Who are these enemies? Who are these enemies? I want to give you four reasons why I believe these enemies are the Jews. Four reasons why I believe these enemies are the Jews. And there's good evidence within the text That these enemies that Paul speaks of is not some random group, not some generic group, if you will, and certainly not um, uh, Gentile pagan unbelievers. I don't think that's who Paul has in mind here. In particular, Paul has in mind that these enemies are the Jews. Take a look uh, at these four reasons. They kind of increase in intensity if you will. So as you go along, you may see it a little more clearly as we get down the list. First, who are these enemies? Reason number one why they are the Jews. Number one, Paul's choice of the word enemy suggests they are Jews. If you take a look at Romans 11.28, this is the only instance, we don't have it up on your screen, but just take a look at home. It would be the only instance in the New Testament where Paul likens this word enemy to a particular people group. And he likens it to the Jews. Paul elsewhere speaks of enemies very generically. But in the one New Testament reference in which he calls enemies a particular people group, he calls it to the Jews. Secondly, secondly, Paul writes that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, which suggests these people were quite pointedly opposed to the Christian claim that man's salvation required the death of the Messiah. It seems very unlikely that Paul would have alluded to the cross of Christ if he was referring to pagan unbelievers. Uh, the pagans would be simply opposed to, to uh, the Christian lifestyle more on a moral and ethical level. Whereas the Jews would be opposed to Christianity 
on the basis of the fact that Christians claim that Messiah had to die in order for people to be saved. You see, according to the Jewish mindset in the Old Testament, um, well, I might say according to their thwarted understanding of the Old Testament, the Jews understood that the Messiah would come and he would immediately become a Davidic-like king who would rule and condemn Rome and establish the rule of Messiah King in Israel, and Israel be lifted up to its highest place, and all would be perfect. That was the perception of a first century Jew. They did not anticipate a suffering servant, if you will. They did not anticipate a Messiah who would come and die first. That was not expected. They weren't reading their Old Testament very closely, though, because in the Old Testament there is numerous... Numerous teaching that the Messiah would be a sufferer. But the Jews conveniently avoided those scriptures. Let us be mindful to pay close attention to the whole counsel of God. Number three, Paul speaks of these enemies with tears in his eyes. Tears in his eyes, which suggests he empathized with the people group he was condemning. He was crying. He said, I'm telling you this weeping. In a sense, he's telling it reluctantly. He's crying over the enemies that he speaks of. Take a look at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, and notice the similarities here. Paul says this to the church at Rome. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. For who? My brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Who does Paul grieve for? The Jews. What was Paul? A Jew. He was an Israelite who happened to believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah, but nevertheless his ethnicity was a Jew. And he says in Romans 9, I grieve over my own people group. And the reason why he grieved over them was because they did not recognize that Jesus was the Christ. That's why he grieved. And so in Philippians 3.18, I speculate that that's why he's weeping. He's weeping over these enemies. And finally, number four. Paul just recently warned the Philippians to beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation in chapter 3, verse 2, the last of which is an unmistakable reference to the Jews. Now, the first two descriptions, you might say, well, that could be more generic. But the last one, when Paul calls them, beware of the mutilation, this group that mutilates, there's no question that Paul's talking about one particular people group, and that is the Jews. And how do we know this? Because the Jews were so isolated and focused on physical circumcision as a sign of favor before God. They viewed the Old Testament symbol of circumcision as the reason for their value before God. And Paul says that's not the reason. That's a symbol. It's a symbol of a covenant relationship. But if you disobey the one who gives you this covenant, you're not going to enjoy right standing before God. So Paul calls their symbol, he calls it a mutilation. He mocks it and he ridicules their value that they place in physical circumcision. 
Really briefly, what about dogs, though, up there? Uh, number four, it says beware of dogs or beware of evil workers. You know, it might, we might, those of you that know your Bibles well, uh, might remember a story in Matthew 15, also in Mark 7, in which uh, Jesus is, is interacting with a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician woman. And she and Jesus get involved in a discussion about uh, dogs, if you will, that are eating the crumbs coming underneath the table. In that story, the dogs are likened to the Gentiles. In fact, it's very common in ancient literature to read from a Jewish perspective and to hear them speak of Gentiles as dogs. And so you might say, well, see, Neil, it's not necessarily just the Jews because Paul uses the term dogs here and that was focused on the Gentiles, not on the Jews. That's a fair argument. It does appear clear that dogs was most uniformly used as a Jewish insult to a Gentile back in the first century and before that. But we have to look at this in context. We have to look at what Paul's saying in context. And based on the context of the early part of chapter 3 and what follows after verse 2, Paul has no interest in talking about unbelieving Gentiles. He is exclusively focused on the Jews exclusively focused on the Jews. So why then, you ask, does Paul call them dogs? Why would Paul use a Jewish insult that was directed to Gentiles and use it against his own people? I speculate this. What Paul is beginning to do in chapter 3, verse 2, and will continue to do in our very next verse, 319, is he is going to reassign what was once a Gentile insult and he's going to reassign that insult to the ones who gave the insult. He's going to say, you who once thought the Gentiles as dogs, now you've become that. And he's going to do the same thing with everything he says in verse 19. You who once thought of this way about the Gentiles, you have become that. You now epitomize that insult. This, I would argue, is Paul's purpose behind speaking in the way that he does about the Jews. He is reassigning an insult. Let's take a look at verse 19. I think you'll see this a little more clearly. Verse 19. He speaks about these, uh, these Jews, these enemies of the cross of Christ. And he, call, and, he, and he notes some things about them, some characteristics about them. Whose end is destruction, he says, these enemies. Their end is destruction. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. Very briefly, whose end is destruction. Paul uses this word destruction earlier in chapter 1, verse 27. And it most likely means eternal destruction. Uh, At the very least, we would look at it and say it it means physical death. But most likely, Paul means here that that they will go on to destruction, to perdition, to condemnation. The Jews, the enemies of the cross of Christ, if they continue to deny that Jesus is the Messiah, they will go on to destruction. But here's here's an important phrase. Whose God is their belly whose God is their belly. Now, traditionally, as we said about dogs, traditionally, the word belly here, and to allude to the belly being a God, was very much a Jewish insult directed at Gentiles. 
We can see this in 1 Corinthians 6.13. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 6.13. It says this. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. This was an old Greek saying, if you will, that Paul employs as he's using an argument in this chapter in 1 Corinthians. And he's saying, you Gentiles, you Corinthians, you are the kinds of people that say this kind of adage, that have this kind of wisdom. Oh, the food that's for the stomach and the stomach's for food. I can eat all I want. I can be as gluttonous as I want. I can act permissively as I want, if you will, in terms of sexual licentiousness, etc., etc., This kind of stock phrase was very common among the Gentiles, very common among the Corinthians. And Paul uses, he he quotes them, and we don't have time, but he also goes on to say that this is the wrong way of thinking. You need need to realize that, that you cannot just look upon your body and say, I can do whatever I want with it. But nevertheless, we see here that the belly, the stomach, if you will, was traditionally used to ridicule the Gentiles. But here again, nowhere in the context of our text today, nowhere in the context of chapter 318 and 19 and prior to and following, do we see Paul critiquing unbelieving Gentiles. In fact, we see pretty compelling evidence that the enemies of the cross of Christ are Jews. And so how, how does Paul like in pious, law-abiding Israelites to those kinds of people that have as their God their belly. How does he do this? How in the world does Paul liken these kinds of people to worshipers of their belly? Well, what about the Jewish dietary customs? What about the Jewish food laws? Could these kinds of things have any bearing on what Paul might be discussing with respect to the stomach? Paul, being a former Pharisee, had intimate knowledge of the mindset of a Pharisee. He knew how they acted. He knew their motives. And he knew how deeply committed they were to the long-standing tradition of the law, and of the teaching of the former rabbis before them and before them and before them. They were meticulous law abiders. Take a look at what we see here in one of the stories with Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Notice this story. Notice the focus, if you will, on the stomach, on the belly. It says this, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Notice this. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and even couches upon which they sat to eat. The Jews had very meticulous food laws. With respect to their stomachs, what went into their stomachs, they were, they were very careful and very observant of how they conducted themselves prior to eating certain kinds of foods. And certainly they prohibited many kinds of foods per the Jewish law. Very focused on the stomach. But after the time of Christ, the food laws which were once in place, Paul says, are no longer applicable. 
They are no longer universally applicable. And so we see in our next verse, take a look at Hebrews chapter 13, 9. Notice what the author of Hebrews says with respect to the food laws of the Jews. He says, Do not be carried about with various, doc- various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. I would encourage you also to take a look at 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Romans 14 to 15. In those texts, you will see utter focus on food, on the stomach, on caring for that component, if you will, that the Jews were so focused on. It had become a religion to them. It had become their religion to them to focus on how they conducted themselves around different kinds of foods. So Paul, saying that their God is their belly, I would argue he's doing this. He's reassigning an insult. We're not talking about the Gentiles here. There's no indication in the context we're doing this. We're talking about the Jews. And so how do the Jews make their God their belly? One scholar said this, Paul is alluding to the observance of laws of food, and he is pouring bitter scorn on the Judaizers with their belly God. He's saying they're focused on their food so much, and Paul is mocking it. Paul is saying, your stomachs, though you thought the Gentiles had the stomach as their God, you have the stomach as your God. Reassigning an insult. What about the next one? What about the next phrase? Glory in their shame. Glory in their shame. It was common knowledge in the first century that the Gentile pagans celebrated and found glory in shameful acts of the flesh. In Ephesians 5.18 we read that it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done in secret. And the Jews were common for ridiculing, if you will, the secret practices of shame of the Gentiles. But here again, we're not talking about Gentiles. We're talking about the Jews. And how does Paul reassign this insult? How does he say that the Jews are the ones that actually glory in their shame? Well, I ask the question, what did the Jews take glory in? As we've read through this last chapter in Philippians, what did the Jews take most pride in? Circumcision. That's right. And what, what, what might we say is something shameful, something to keep covered, if you will? The same thing that the Jews took glory in, their own circumcision. They took glory in their circumcision. They took glory, Paul says, in what was to be covered, what was shameful. And why was it shameful? Because they were mutilators of it. They had looked upon circumcision with eyes that the Lord never intended them to look upon. Paul here again, reassigning an insult to the Jews. I want to give somewhat of a summary if you're having any trouble at all following along here. Take a look at the summary of Paul's intent in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Uh, I note this. I tried to explain as clear as I could. Paul is saying something like this. 
You Jews have become precisely what you once insulted. Your Gentile neighbors, of whom you once called scavenging dogs, the same neighbors whom you mocked because of their predisposition to gluttony and licentious behavior, you have become just like them. You are now the scavenging dogs. You are now the ones who worship your belly by your ritualistic food loss. You are now the ones who glory in what is shameful by your boast and physical circumcision. You now epitomize what you once ridiculed. Your conduct, if you will, befits your destination. Your conduct is befitting your destination. They now epitomize what they once ridiculed. This, I believe, is what Paul is saying in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Now, there are some who will argue that no, Paul is talking about unbelieving Gentiles. But I say very clearly, there's no indication in the text that Paul's speaking of that people group. Other than these stock phrases, which traditionally are Gentile insults, there's no indication that Paul would be referring to pagan unbelievers, unbelieving Gentiles. He is reassigning insults to Jews. And he is doing so very pointedly. You and I know, um, we know insults in our own culture. We know things that people say of other people groups. We're well aware of those insults. And if you were to receive the same insult that was normally directed for another people group, boy, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? If you were to receive an insult that was traditionally directed at another people group, or in fact that your own people group would like and, and would often say about another people group, that would get your attention. And that is what Paul is doing here. He's getting the attention of the Jews. He's drawing attention to the Philippians as well, saying, they insulted you this way, they have become this now. Okay. The last part of uh, verse 19, he talks about they have a this earthly focus. And this is primarily to contrast what he's about to say in verse 20. Let's pick it up again in verse 20. Paul says this, For our citizenship, our citizenship, Philippians, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word are there is in the emphatic position. That means it's, it's, it's set up to the front of the sentence. Paul is saying our citizenship. Much like he does in chapter 3, verses, chapter three verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision, not those mutilators. We are. And here again, he's saying they set their mind on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And the word for there, you know, normally, <clears throat> this is, again, just, a, just a, a, a bit of a technicality, but nevertheless interesting. Normally, the word for there connects things. In fact, uniformly in the New Testament, when the Greek word gar is used, it's to connect what came before to what's coming after. But this is not a connection. Paul is not using verse 19 and connecting it with verse 20. He's contrasting verse 19 from verse 20. And so we might have rather anticipated the word chi or but in Greek. But Paul uses the word for. And some would speculate, and I, I have really no opinion on the matter, but I, I found it very interesting. Some speculate that here again, in verse 20 and 21, much like we saw in chapter 2, 
verses 6 to 11, Paul is quoting a very well-known Christian hymn or saying. Um, It's very possible that the early church would develop uh, hymns and songs and would speak uh, certain ways of Jesus Christ to bring to remembrance their hope and uh, to write poetry, if you will, and to write songs. And this, again, in verses 20 and 21, is quite likely a Christian saying that Paul adapts to his writing here to further identify with the Philippians. And the reason why they speculate that is because Paul wouldn't have used the word for there in the, in the normal sense of the word. So just as an aside, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, and po- quite possibly Philippians 3, 20 and 21 are old Christian hymns. What about citizenship? This word citizenship means to be a part of a commonwealth, a part of a state. He uses the word back in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the, of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct back in chapter 1 is the same word here. Paul is indicating that we are citizens of a different kind. We are not citizens of earth. We do not worship the belly. We do not take glory in what is shameful. Contrary to these enemies, we have a different kind of citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. Those who believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life are new citizens of heaven. From which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we waiting for? Well, Paul goes on to indicate, look at verse 21. What will Jesus do? Who will transform our lowly body, our humble body, that it may be conformed, that it may be made similar to His glorious body. And how does He do this? According to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Friends, this is... If it is a Christian hymn, I can see why they sang it. This is our hope. Our hope is that Christ will return and Christ will transform us. That is our blessed hope. And we should be encouraged by this. Jesus is coming again. And our frail bodies, Archer's body that got beat up in an accident, is going to be made new. Those who are dealing with cancer and disease, you're going to get a new body. Our physical body will be transformed into and conformed to His glorious body. An eternal, spiritual body. This is the hope of the Christian. And how is Jesus able to do this? He's able to do this because He has the power to subject even all things to Himself. Hebrews suggests that the time has not come yet in which Christ has subjected all things to Himself. But that time is coming. And at His return, He will subject all things to Himself. And He will transform us. Change our bodies to be like His body. Now we come to chapter 4. And we finish up with these last three verses. Take a look at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown... So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Notice in yellow how Paul speaks of uh, the people here. 
If that's not evidence of Paul's love for the Philippians, I don't know what is. Twice he calls them beloved. He calls them longed for. He says, you are my joy and my crown. Literally, you are the object of my joy. You are the object of my joy. When's the last time the object of your joy was someone in this church? Paul says, this Philippian church, the people of this church are the object of my joy. I rejoice in them. And they are my crown. I liken them to a victor's crown. And he says, so stand fast in the Lord. Hold your post. Hold your ground like a soldier. As I've been indicating throughout this book, how to live, how to conduct yourself. And I'm going to talk about even more how to conduct yourself following this section. He says, in this way, stand fast in the Lord. But there is a distinct conflict in Philippi. Paul realizes that though some are standing fast, there are two in particular that are failing. Two women in particular are at odds in the church at Philippi. Take a look at verse 2. It says, I employ Yodia and I employ Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Notice how Paul uses the word implore both times here. He's saying there are two women in this church um, who have a problem. And as I insert myself to an extent into the problem, I'm asking both of them to work on this problem. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche. These are requests. These are not imperatives. These are not commands Paul's requesting. Though he has the apostolic right to command them, he instead chooses to ask to show, if you will, some respect. Um, And just pay attention to how Paul is going about resolving this conflict. He urges them to be of the same mind in the Lord, literally to think the same. And this is nothing new. Paul has been talking about mindset throughout this book. In particular, he asks us to have the mind of Christ in chapter 2, verse 5. Have the mind of Christ, not a mind that is selfish and hoarding and gathering and exploiting, but a mind that is giving and unselfish and sacrificial. Now these two women, the fact that Paul even brings these two women up indicates that they must have been significant in the church. Paul would not have addressed this dispute had these two women not been significant women in the church. Um, they must have had some positions of, uh, of leadership with, uh, with respect to, uh, to conducting the church in one fashion or another. Perhaps they were women's Bible study leaders. Perhaps uh, they, were, uh, they were side by, well, it indicates that they were side by side with Paul earlier on in spreading the gospel. So these women uh, were quite possibly deaconesses, if you will, in the church at Philippi. But here we see some tips. Very brief tips. I want to go over these really quickly. Tips for resolving conflict. Very cursory tips, but I wanted to point these out. Notice here Paul's little tips. Number one, someone's got to ask for the reconciliation. Someone wants to ask for it to happen. Paul's the one asking for it to happen here. Number two, reconciliation takes effort from both parties. He employs Yodia and he employs Syntyche. He doesn't ask one of them to resolve it. He asks both of them to get it right. Thirdly, reconciliation requires unity of thought and attitudes. I might say in the Lord. Be of the same mind. Try to find commonality here. Try to find a sense of unity of attitude and of thought with one another. 
recognize where each other is coming from, and find compromise. And before you go making fun of these names, I, I want to... I want to warn you because John and Katie told me if they're having a girl, they were thinking about one of these two names for their baby. So, Which one, John? Yodia? Okay, it's going to be Yodia. Okay, so don't make fun of these names. Last verse, last verse. Now we're going to pick it up here and there's good, there's good meat at the end here, so hang tight with me. Now Paul employs somebody else. Now Paul asks somebody else to get involved. Now that's very interesting. He says, and I urge you also, true companion, doesn't name the person, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now this verse suggests that the problem is getting very serious. For Paul would not have requested the assistance of others had it not been a serious matter. Now, I want you on your sheets there, but I want you to keep in mind, we're not going to look at it today, but keep in mind Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. In it, Jesus speaks of how to resolve sin and conflict and opposition and problems between people. Jesus gives a very simple formula. One, go to the person. You got a problem? Go to that person. Don't tell Neil. Don't tell your mom and dad. Don't tell your spouse. Don't whine about it. You got a problem. Somebody's sinned against you. Somebody's offended you. You got a conflict. Go to them. That's Matthew 18, 15. Verse 16, if it doesn't get resolved, bring somebody else in. If it doesn't get resolved, bring in another person. You can perhaps bring in two people and try to bring about reconciliation. If it still doesn't work, you go on to Matthew 18, verse 17. Then the church gets involved. And then the church handles the situation. And the elders and the leadership of the church get together and they insert themselves into the confrontation. But that's the steps. One, two, three. Face to face. Bring one or two. Get the church involved. Where are we in the process here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3? We're step two. The situation is escalated. Paul is asking someone else to insert themselves into the conversation. He's asking his true companion. Be mindful of those steps, ladies and gentlemen. I I would urge all of us, brothers and sisters, there's nothing that can kill a church more than not following that order of conflict resolution, of sin resolution. Um, I I, I am quite adamant that uh, when I receive a complaint, uh, I I try and sometimes I fail. But I try my best to say, have you, have you spoken with this with the person? And if they say no, from now on, I'm going to say, well, I can't help you. Because I would be disobeying Jesus' commands with respect to sin resolution and conflict resolution. If you haven't spoken to the person, don't tell me. And don't tell anyone else. Go to them. And chances are, they're going to resolve it with you. I know the people of this church. And the people of this church are gracious and loving. And I think that we can always get conflicts resolved at step one. But Paul calls in the true companion. This could have been literally uh, the, the name in Greek. The, the word companion could be a proper name. But Paul nevertheless probably doesn't identify this person. Most likely a man is written in masculine form. But he says get inserted into the conversation because it's gotten serious. We're at step two here. And these women have labored with me. 
They've strived with me. They are mature believers who once were with me in the spread of the gospel along with Clement and others. Their names are in the book of life. That is God's record book of those who have been justified by faith in His Son. He says, I want you to help these women. And he leaves it at that. We don't know what happens. In verse 4 and following, he, he, skips, he skips ship and he goes on to another topic. But nevertheless, simple tips for conflict resolution that we see in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Application. Here we go. What in the world can we learn? This was a rather uh, scattered approach for Paul. He talked about a lot of things here. And I had trouble breaking up when I wanted to, to speak on which sections here because it is quite a bit of a a change in ideas throughout the text. But there are some things to apply. First is this. Something to know. The enemies of the cross of Christ are the Jews who now epitomize what they once ridiculed in the Gentiles. That is an important point. Two, Christian, be encouraged. Take encouragement. You are a citizen of heaven and will one day receive a new and glorious body like our Lord Jesus Christ. That should encourage you. You should walk out of here with joy knowing that. Three, take note of Paul's wisdom in handling the conflict between the women at Philippi. Notice how he chose his words carefully. He asked them both to get involved. And follow Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, 15 and following. Step one, step two, step three. Don't fall out of line with with those commands of Christ. They are wise. And four, I urge all of us, put aside petty disputes and resolve conflicts before the sun sets. Do not, do not ever sacrifice the health and unity of this church for useless bickering and strife. It is surely, surely not worth it. Let our conduct befit our destination. We Christians are destined for eternal life with Jesus Christ. Let our conduct... Let us exude that destination. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for the time in Your Word. We thank You for how Your Word speaks to us. Sometimes simply. Sometimes we read it and we say, well, that's very simple wisdom and instruction there. And yet it's so easy to overlook it. With respect to conflict resolution and sin resolution in particular, Lord, it's so easy, so easy to bypass what Your Word says about how to resolve conflicts. Father, I pray that this church would continue to be fostered and grown up in unity, that there would not be useless strife and petty disputes, but that we would love one another, we would show respect toward one another. And Father, in so doing, that we would be a tremendous, tremendous representatives of Jesus Christ while here on earth. We look forward, Father, to heaven and to the transformation of our bodies. Thank you for that hope. In Christ's name, amen.